Hey, everybody. This is Davos. This is the Ice House. Welcome to the very first kickoff event of Davos 2023. It's sort of a tradition that me and Jen sit up here and welcome two of our favorite communities in one intersection place. There's totally. the Burner community, which we're kind of celebrating, and then there's the Davos community. And I often see these as these polar forces. We have the winter force and we have the summer force, and they're both super interesting. So I'm going to stop you because we're going to dive into that in more detail. As, as usual. Stan loves the epic intro. So what I'm going to say is, if you're watching online from our live stream, welcome to the 2023 Hub Culture Davos Leadership Campus. This is the Ice House. We're going to get into a freewheeling conversation. It's the third year talking about how we're co-creating the future society. It's a conversation that has been going on now for several years with our burner friends. So we love you. Over to Jen. Okay, great. I was going to say probably a little bit of the same, but I'll just say it again to you guys in the room now this time which is, hello, thank you all so much for coming. I'm delighted that you're all here in the flesh. It's amazing in this post-pandemic, semi-post-pandemic world to actually all be here together. And now that we're convening again, um, starting to reflect on what we actually want and how things have changed, what we're like now, now that we've gotten the connectivity out of our systems from being locked up for so long. And here we all are to kind of recalibrate, you know, I think... We're starting the year of recalibration, 2023. This is the infamous Stan, which I'm sure most of you guys know, but I'll have him dive into a little bit more about who he is and what he does in a minute. And I also want to say thank you to everyone at the Hub here. You guys always take care of us super, super well. As Stan was saying, there has been a dialogue going on here in the Hub, Hub Culture Pavilion, for many, many years. Uh, I think it started in 2014 when I first showed up here and Stan invited me to a dinner with a whole bunch of burners, as well as actually non-burners, but more on that in a minute about how we're all really the same people. And I'm just going to start with a little context, and we're going to bring up some more speakers. Um, but to start with, so here we are, right, at the fringe. We're on the fringe. We're on the fringe of Davos. Some of us are burners. Some of us aren't burners. We're on the fringe of being on the 10 principles. We're literally sat on the fringe of the fringe of the fringe of the fringe. And I'd love to see who here is actually a burner, if I get a show of hands. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. We've got maybe about, I'd say about 30% of this room. That's really awesome. Okay, and so, <laughs> actually, how many man buns do we have in the room? A shockingly low number, actually. How many man buns do you see, Stan? I don't think I see anybody. I think, I think that, that might be one. That might be one. There could be one. I know that. No, that's not one. But yeah, we do. We do have a little bit of a kind of identity crisis with the Burning Man community. It's a man bun community. It's a it's a it's a burner community. What is this burner thing? What does it mean? So typically, back in the day, burner very much meant somebody who went to Burning Man or Black Rock City. Today, that is one hundred percent not the case, okay? Even in 2014, when I first went to France, actually, with the founders of Burning Man, they said to us, please do not announce your event more than 24 hours before you host it. And I said, why? And they said, well, 4,000 people will show up. I was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea there were so many burners here. And they said, well, actually, almost none of them have been to America. Actually, most of them have never really even been to a Burning Man event. And that's when I realized that this is actually more of an ethos and a culture 
And being a burner has absolutely nothing to do specifically with any of these events anymore. So I'm going to declare all of you guys burners, whether you've been to Burning Man or not. And actually, you know, given that this is probably one of the most sophisticated unconferences that I've ever been to, where nobody's hosting it, nobody's leading it, and you have the permission for uh, different content to emerge and different things to happen, we are very much at a mini Burning Man. <laughs> Burning Man, Davos 2023, now open. Now open. Congratulations. We just, we just made gate entry, and you have to go outside and make snow angels at the end. <laughs> oh, my God, so into that. So really, this convening that we have here started in 2020 when Stan and I were trying to think about what the decade ahead was going to look like. And we had some really amazing folks here. Uh, uh, I can't remember who was. Bill was here. Some other people were here. We had a panel and built high, and uh, then the whole world changed. And we thought to ourselves, let's bring this conversation online. So we created From Dust. Stan, what was, what was From Dust? Well, it was a lot of things, because yeah. we were all isolated. But From Dust became this sort of dusty collaboration of technologies that bound everybody together. And a lot of it was Clubhouse. A little bit of it was the start of ideas in Clubhouse that m sort of moved into WhatsApp chats and then moved from there into Telegram chats and then moved from there into kind of just co-collaborating some new technologies. And the basis of that was the beginning of a, a kind of just random holder website that meant that thing in the desert.io, T-T-I-T-D.io. It was just like, let's come up with a website. But the point of it was that Jen wanted to map the cultural impact of Burning Man at large around the world. And so we, Clubhouse, a bunch of people in chat, just started building this wiki. And it's become the kind of de facto global resource for understanding how Burning Man shows up outside the playa. Or burners, rather. Yeah, exactly. And, and another really interesting thing about this From Dust conversation was that it basically was a crossroads of many, many, many different people who had different agendas and very much focused on counterculture and, and, and the opportunity to bring more bottom-up, human-led innovation into our ecosystems, which was very much galvanized by the kind of cultural shift we went through in the pandemic. So Stan and I started this wiki, which is wonderful. And I would love actually later on in this conversation to learn a bit more about you guys. So I'm providing some context. We're going to introduce our speakers, speakers, but then I'd love to actually go through this room and see what initiatives we have here and potentially add them to our wiki if we can. But, you know, basically this is a resource that like many things, DAOs, many other networks could potentially lead to a fund or an ability for us to start kind of documenting. So I'd love to interview some of you as well as funding some of these collective interests. And I really like to have a conversation about what is the landscape now? What assumptions did we have even two months ago that we don't have now uh, or that have changed now about the, the collective impact landscape as it, as it relates to this kind of more open, less linear societal model. And, and what are you guys doing? So without further ado, oh, actually, I should probably mention that after what Stan and I did with the wiki, 
we decided to start traveling around the world. I can't believe I forgot to tell everybody this. Okay, so, that, so then we started to travel around the world. We had this From Dust clubhouse room turned into many other things. The wiki was galvanized. And Stan and I started to travel around the world doing our, our things, but also investigating, investigating different types of new models of co-creative communities or examples in society. Um, so Stan, do you want to talk about the Great Unknown Trip for a second? So like many burner things, it kind of just appeared. And Jen and I were in the lobby of the Ace Hotel like on a July day. And we're like, let's meet up and have a drink. And she was like, where are you going to be the next couple months? And I'm like, I'm going to be, nah, 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 nah. And I'm like, where are you going to be? And she's like, I'm going to be here, 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 here. And we're like, well, what if we sync this up? And we're like, why don't we just try to create this like kind of road trip? But it's like a road trip that includes Dubai and Glasgow and the Alps and other places. Okay, pause, pause. And so one of the things that we had learned in Clubhouse was that we need to create more permission. Burning Man creates permission for people to do whatever they want to co-create. And so through this Clubhouse discussion, we started realizing, oh my goodness, we should travel around the world and start looking for arenas, business models, urban design, infrastructure, culture, personal ritual, festival culture, festival economics. How is festival economics driving the change in society? And these places for the unknown. So based on the little map behind us, which is pretty rudimentary, but you will probably get it, is basically we need to create permission to do all these sort of things. Uh, we can do that individually or we can do it collectively. When we do it individually, when we play, we create permission for play, it creates new vision. And when we prototype with permission, it creates new skills. When we do this on a collective level, it creates new creative culture. And so I would like to introduce our speakers, and we're going to dive into this a little bit more. Harold, why don't you come up here? And Yaro, I'm putting you on the spot, but you're going to come up here too. And I'm going to have my speakers introduce themselves in the context of their initiatives and how they believe their initiatives are creating permission for this new creative culture. And we'll take it from there. Actually, I think we should start with Stan, simply because we started talking about the hub in Davos already. The hub is a permission zone. It allows a space for all this content to come together. You created it, well, you tell me when, but many years ago, on the fringe of one of the most intense conferences of all time um, in order to create a convenience space for the unknown to emerge. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the hub and, and, and your wonderful mission? Thanks. I'll, I'll keep it brief because you know, there's other things yeah, to talk about. Exactly. Here, but, you know, we're, we just turned 20 years old in November of last year. And we, I actually, uh, we just had a massive upgrade to our AI this week, which went live last night. And I asked our AI if we were the oldest social network in the world, because I've always thought we were. And the AI, Zeke, told me that we are not, because the oldest social network in the world was Usenet, established in 1979. But in the way that we think of like Web2 social, we are the oldest. We're older than Facebook. We're older than MySpace. Older the, than Facebook. Yeah. We started in 2002. Um, 2007, we launched our digital currency, started creating co-working spaces in 2005. 
And in 2007, I left my job at Time Warner, came to Davos the day after I left my career. And um, we started goofing around. We tried to have a party. No one came. The next year, I saw a little hair salon downstairs, and I asked the lady if I could rent it. And she agreed because she liked me and we kind of vibed. And then the next year, the hub was born in the salon downstairs. And it was really the first place along the whole of the promenade. The only thing that was was us in Zurich. And Zurich was an office. But we were the first place for creative, collaborative culture in Davos. And of course, you look at the promenade now, and it's really exciting and invigorating to see that after many years of people saying, I don't know what a hub is, I think we all know what a hub is now. <laughs> um, so that's how we got here. And 2016, this is the seventh year of the Ice House. And you know, this is innovation for the circular economy. 2020, the Tech Lodge, advanced relationship between technology and humanity. And we have new exciting things coming. That is so wonderful. I think you, you, you opened before 2015, though, right? You had downstairs. The first hub was 2009. Right, exactly. So the Ice House was just the addition to the very yeah, first hub. Yeah, the Ice House, yeah, it came, yeah. But, mm -hmm. you know, the hub started 2009, and the very first hub was in 2005 on the beach in Rio in Posto Nove. Wonderful. Okay, and so really quickly, how has your mission been perceived in the past versus now in this post-pandemic world? Have you noticed a sense of change or a shift in the understanding of the importance of kind of like creating space for the unknown? That's such a great question because I think that everything really changed in the pandemic and we're only just beginning to understand it. And this idea of play space, of unknown space and white space is actually the only place where value still exists because everything else has been commodified, right. which we all know if you're a burner, you know that commodification is this trigger word. And so trying to avoid that and to also exist in a world that is so relentlessly capitalist is tough. And we're experiencing that in such extreme ways this very second here in Davos. Okay. I, I want to introduce other speakers, but I just have one more question for you. So I read an article that said that Brock Pierce, who's a friend of many people in this room, I'm sure, mentioned that, I think he said, we are here and we are here to stay when he was commenting about the fringe and said that the cryptocurrency community basically galvanized the Undavos. This is an interesting statement because I don't necessarily think that's 100% true, but I don't think it's 100% wrong either. I think that actually, quote unquote, burners and like-minded people did that before the crypto thing was a thing, hence yourself. But then also you became one of the early creative currencies, which is something that we're going to talk about in a bit further detail. So can you just I tell mean, me about that right. statement and how I you mean, feel about it? He's right. He, I'm sure he wasn't referring to us, but the reality is, is that Venn, our digital currency, was part of that since 2007. So it existed before that. Every partnership, every coffee was paid in digital currency. I don't think the crypto community gives us credit for that, but absolutely Venn was the first digital currency in Davos and it helped us create these buildings, which helped create the rest of it. So he's right, but I'm sure he wasn't crediting me with that. No, I don't mean so much about, about you specifically. I just think you, you might have a very unique perspective on it, yeah. given exactly who you are. Yeah. But but I think, you know, what do you think about 20, that comment, though? Well, I mean, I don't think that's totally true, but I do think that the Undavos crowd... We are the same people. We are the same people. Yeah, but the Undavos crowd, which is not crypto, but there's some crypto people, that's had a huge impact. It's really about community, and it's, it's not about that. It's about outside versus inside. 
And the insiders are the, inside the Congress halls and the outsiders are outside. And the outsiders have slowly become more and more visible and important to what Davos is. And I think, you know, the flippening happened around probably 2017 or 2018. But, but you know, kind of in that crypto wave. So the, the crypto people might have pushed it over in the flippening, but it was happening before. Right. Yeah, I mean, creative currency is much more than just currency. And you can prove firsthand with all of the case studies of all the wonderful work that you guys have done that bringing people together in this sort of unknown capacity is actually a creative currency of its own. I mean, so many amazing things have happened in this room over the years have happened downstairs. Incredible things. Right. Okay, great. So we'll, we'll, t- double t- we'll double click on that later. Let's go to Harold because he's sitting next to you. Harold, why don't you tell everybody who you are and a little bit about how what your work is and, and sort of how it has also space for kind of bottom-up innovation and permission embedded into it. Okay, I try to make it short. So Harold, um, I'm a curator by heart and uh, I run two events, com- communities, if you will. One is MLove. I started in 2010 and uh, it started as a passion for mobile and now it's more like a passion for meaning in technology. So from the get-go, mobile was sort of the thing which you had, I don't know, a mobile ad, but also an SMS in Africa could change the world. And that was always the bridge we wanted to do. So for me, a key word is cross-pollination. So I try to, let's say, run conferences, for example, say, oh yeah, the, you know, now on sustainable innovation, but it's all about what, how can we convince, for example, corporate leaders to go into regenerative futures because sustainability as we know is just like ah we have to do now sustainable transformation and i was like no sorry are we on what kind of channel is this (laughs) somebody blooping me out no but uh, i have a personal vendetta with like digital transformation because that's 30 years and it's basically 20 years of investment stallment basically they didn't do that job and now if they start to talk about oh we have starting sustainable transformation we're like no this is another 30 years we don't do this. You know, we basically have only before this decade is out, the next eight years, to make radical change. And so radical change for me started also you know, being in the temple 2008 for the first time and just crying my heart out for a day and really saying, like, wow, this is such a unique place and where spirit and uh, half of Silicon Valley runs around and, and creative people and models from L.A. And uh, so it's a circus, but that kind of changed my you know, my life, basically. And then you created your own circus. Then I created my own circle, circus, and <laughs> exactly, and, and um, you were there, and, and uh, ah, you remember, there was the CTO of Burning Man, uh, um, um, Camera Girl. Camera Girl, yeah. yeah. Also the comrade. She is so cool. And uh, <laughs> She helped us get our start in Burning Man with our camp. <laughs> she said, like, they're building, I mean, first thing they built after the, t- when the temple starts and the burning starts, they start to build the communication, and they called it the big erection. Like, uh, oh boy. So I like you already. <laughs> and um, okay, no, it was uh, this kind of uh, thing. So from Burning Man, um, it's sort of this cross pollination. I think that's what this job is also. I mean, you started earlier than Meta, now you look down at the little Meta thing down there. But I, what I'm trying to do, let's say for me, a headline is I just read it yesterday like, the next big thing is do less. So Hell from, you know, before, to, let's say 2019, I'm tra- I traveled to about 50 conference a year and yes co2 i know uh, and now i probably try to do three or four i went to glasgow i said okay i do my cop but that's it i don't go to the others anymore i think that's overrated so i rather want to settle now in portugal land of the next white canvas california of europe 
build a tiny eco-village community and see what kind of collective wisdom from all these different communities I can just manifest in a tiny place. Beautiful. And I mean, I guess we also kind of know that every conference is turned into a festival. Every festival is turned into a conference. Every, you know, community then throws a festival. We work throws a festival, for God's sakes. Everybody throws a festival. You know what I mean? It's all sort of bleeding into one. So at some point, you kind of have to think about where are we going to put our stake in the land and co-create with the people that we want to co-create with. So I think, I think that's really cool. I'm sure a lot of people are drawn to Portugal for obvious tax reasons also. Okay, so anything else that we want to comment on before I hand it over to Yara? Um, just when you said festival, so why I started it is, let's say you, you let's say I go to Mobile World, went to Mobile World Congress, so one of these tech festivals, if you will, but then you meet 300 people, 300 business cards in one week, 30 are like, oh, let's do some business in the next two quarters, and three people is like, you know, uh, how do you say, speed dating, like, oh, within three minutes meeting Yaro, you're like, wow, we're in the same, let, I, just want to have lunch together, but then she goes to Hong Kong, you go to Vancouver, the other person goes to, I don't know, London, and you may maybe meet again at one of these festivals, but it's not about being with 100,000 people, meeting these three people, and then you say, okay, that's how we stay in touch, whether it's through you know, our Kinnanet friends, or, or then find these three here. So I think that's Nobody's why, thanks for setting up Nobody's cracked the code this. on the social connecting, except for maybe Yarrow. Okay, without further ado... My friend Yaro, sitting to my left. Thank you, Jen and Harold. So good to see you. Stan. I run something called Hatch, which is in its 20th year. Uh, it's a summit, global network, a series of impact labs that are designed around cross-pollinating really diverse thinkers to accelerate solutions for big challenges. And done that in a variety of different ways, like with environment, education, equity, and so forth. But I love your origin story. I have something similar. I grew up in Montana, couldn't wait to get out, went to Los Angeles, and I thought I was moving to the epicenter of creative genius, and I'd be inspired every day. And two years in, I was at this Hollywood Hills party, and everyone looked exactly the same, like super beautiful and you know, dressed in black, but almost like the same person. I walked outside, looked up to the stars, and I was like, where are they? And this voice said, who? I'm like, whoa, where'd you come from? I was like, all by myself on this deck. And it was a Czechoslovakian composer that was teaching deaf kids how to read and play music. And I was just like, urch, like, tell me everything about that. Like, how does, can they feel the music? Are they just playing it for the, you know, the enjoyment of others? And I was just fascinated by it. And the next day, standing in line for coffee, I met this scientist that was piecing the ozone layer back together. And I'm just like, is it working? You're like, literally saving the world. You're like a real life superhero. So in 1999, I started a company called The Hero Project, Super Dudes. It was all around finding and connecting real-life superheroes because pre-social network, it was like hard to find other people that were also like rolling that boulder up the mountain of impossible odds. And when you know that there's other people doing something like one trench over, it gives you that sense of unity and strength. And so we crashed Sundance in 2000. We went into a place, we had like a whole plan where we walked in with like earpieces and like acted like we worked there. More fringe culture happening, yeah. yes. We got like, you know, water for the security guards. We're like, thank you so much for your work. What can I do? Anything you need? You know, oh, here come the super dudes. Come on in. And then we just set up shop. And it was like the whole digital, you know, it was like $10,000 a square foot. And we just like found a spot under the stairs. And we were taking photographs and making photo, you know, like printing out these laminated badges with people's faces on them and asking them what their superpower, you know, superpowers were. I'm like, like, no, that's how you got, come on, like, put your chest out, like, you, you got, you're, everyone's got superness within them, and people are like, and there's this guy standing with a clipboard, he's like, 
looking really confused. And then we all called each other by our superhero names. We're like, Mr. Electric. <laughs> and I motioned over to this guy and he like, hey, mate, what's up? And he's like this, Mr. Electric was like this Kiwi had like fiery red hair, big smile, really beautiful look. He like moves him over to the green screen. I hop up, take his photograph. The guy's like, I don't see you on our blueprint. You're not supposed to be here. I hand the, the chip off. We like print this card out. We make a big deal every time we like supernate someone, put the, the badge on them. And he's like, what? There's a picture of him like standing there like, and he's like, what are you guys doing here? We're looking for superheroes like you. He's like, I'll be right back. And we're like, uh-oh. And he goes upstairs, comes back. He's like, you guys can't be here. You're creating a huge traffic liability. We're going to have to move you up to the VIP, the VIP room. And, and we're like, okay. So we launched our company in Superdudes in that year at Sundance. And we got meetings with Warner Brothers, et cetera, et cetera. Like it turned into a social network in 2000, 2001, 2002. We grew it to about a million and a half people. So when you were saying like the oldest social network, I've always kind of pondered those same you know, questions around like those really early days, you know, pre Friendster and, and pre Facebook, obviously. And Friendster started before us, but they died. So. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a, you know, 1.5 million heroes around the world, and we were activating them through this digital currency called Knowledge Nuggets. So you'd play these games, gather these points to rise up this karma counter, and they all, all the games had like these sort of purpose driven missions around them, but there was a, like a bait and a switch. So at level two, because we had all these like different sponsor-driven prizes, you could get you know access to surfboards or skateboards or you know clothing, whatever concert tickets. Um, at level two, you get a prompt that says, "How do you save the world? Start with where you are." Type in your zip code, and you're like, eh. "You get ten things you can do within a three-mile radius of where you live to impact your backyard." And we started mobilizing people out into their communities to like walk dogs to the Humane Society and do park reclamations and. So within a year of that program, we had like 10 and a half billion of these knowledge nuggets. And then Fox Studios made an acquisition offer. And I was like, no. And all of our investors were like, huh? Of course, yes. Wait, so quick question. The knowledge nuggets, these were geographical locations in different places? No, it was a digital currency. Oh, the currency's got it. So there's a variety of different ways you could like play to like got it. aggregate them to then exchange them in for different prizes. And, but then once you go donate a Saturday, you come home and you get 10,000. And a light bulb would go off and be like, I could play these video games for a month and not get that. So we started kind of pushing people out of these volunteer match opportunities. And so when Fox acquired us, I was like, I voted against it. Everyone else voted for it. And I lost. And, you know, I went back to Montana to kind of figure out what was next and felt a little bit sorry for myself for a few months and then realized that, you know, Fox had bought a brand and not the purpose. And the purpose could take a lot of different forms. And that's when Hatch was founded. So tell us about Hatch. Quickly. So, yeah. so we do hatch. There's annual summits a year, we, um, 100 that are invited in this kind of chemistry set that we think will combust into collaborations that yield impact for 100 million. So we created an AI to kind of track those measurements. This year we'll do one in Mexico, a summit in Mexico, one in Switzerland in uh, Co at the Co Palace uh, in June, which Harold and I will be collaborating on. And then one in the heartland of the US, which is with the intention to help bridge the perception gap that's happening between the coasts and the middle of America. So I'd love to ask your opinion. How do you think a wiki that is mapping or attempting to map all of the kind of bottom-up different diverse initiatives happening in the fringe of the burner landscape? I'm not just going to say the burner landscape. I'm going to say the fringe of the burner landscape because we're also starting to talk about creative capital and creative currency now, which are not, you know, for the people who are BlackRock City devotes right now. It, it, it's all 10 principles or nothing else, okay? And, and 
this is very much about the adaptation of some of that and how we're bringing this culture into other forms of society in order to kind of fulfill the late Larry, Larry Harvey's vision. And so I'm curious to know your thoughts on this sort of idea based on the, what you did in creating space for these people to come together and how potentially, I don't know, maybe um, wikis aren't the sexiest things, but uh, <laughs> how... They're highly effective. Highly effective. Highly unsexy and highly effective. Yes. <laughs> the last one, I was like in 2001 was the first time I went to Burning Man. We yeah. landed totally by accident. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And like Harold said, it was just like a kind of a mind-blowing experience. But to your question, if, I mean... I know you've thought about this stuff, like, a lot. Like, yeah, I think, lot I think wikis have a very practical, the crowdsourced, like, it's the fastest way to aggregate useful links to lots of information. Yeah. There is a, an opportunity to improve on those, though. Oh, 100%. I mean, that's really... It's, it's just a, it's just a, it's I mean, a one of the biggest man. things we could do is figure out how to keep spam bots from attacking wikis, which is a yeah, How do we keep here. spam bots from attacking wikis, everybody? No. Okay, so I kind of want to bring up Sophia, but I know that she might not love that. Okay, anyways, I'll just introduce myself. So I'm Jen Sander, previous head of innovation for Bernie Men for the last 10 years, first and last head of innovation for Bernie Men. I run a creative consultancy, and that focuses on innovation advisory also. And I'm also kind of, the reason I took a step back is because I feel that there's been so much progress in the last little while that I really, really want to share my knowledge with other cultural offshoots such as yourselves and, and help build the map between these things and double click on the creative currencies and what that means right now. Like as we were saying earlier, some people think the crypto kids founded on Davos. Some people think the burners funded on Davos. Some people think they're the same people. Who knows? But the point is, is... We have the opportunity as a shared value network, I think, to actually map and solve some of the most, I don't know what the right word is, intense problems that our world is facing. So without further ado, I'd love to hear from people in this audience um, about things that maybe they're working on that have been providing space for this kind of bottom-up emergence or what they've been you know, doing over the last three years, how the ecosystem has changed in different ways that we might not have expected and what you think is interesting. So either initiative you're working on or initiative that is interesting that um, anyone love to share. And I have a few categories as per the wiki that I would love to discuss um, if nobody has anything they'd like to volunteer right away. All right. Oh, wait, you, you go first. <laughs> I'm Zell. Is my All right, we'll go backwards from Z. We've been discriminated against forever for having... <laughs> Now's your moment. That's not fair. I'm Tony Zell. I'm an earth lawyer. Earth law is founded much on systems thinking, but it's more of a glue than a being. It's that interstitial space. I have three colleagues here. The rest of the... I don't think you'll meet other earth lawyers here in Davos. And we have a lot of initiatives. We've kind of heard about this opportunity and uh, found ourselves connected in a way immediately with Troy. We had dinner last night. And so I'm going to pass it to you. That's sweet. My name is Troy, and uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Earthshot Labs, which does conservation and reforestation and finances projects around the world. Tomorrow, we do have a great offering from 3 to 7 at the Wisdom House in collaboration with these folks and many other ecological restoration organizations 
if you want to come talk to any of them or me. Tell us a little bit more about your lab. I'm curious to know about you. What does it do? So one, we operate reforestation and conservation projects ourselves. So this is in collaboration with, like an example, the Shipibo communities in Peru were organizing conservation projects over 2.5 million hectares and getting those funded from traditional banks and governments and trying to mobilize on the order of hundreds of billions of dollars a year into nature restoration. And that has to be... Yeah, so far philanthropy has been really good, but clearly it's not enough and policy has started to be better, but it also hasn't been enough. So we need to mobilize private capital at a level of sophistication that you know other asset classes have. And so that's what we're up to. Okay, thank you for sharing. Hi, I'm Duncan Murray. I've been in crypto since about 15 and 16. I found, well, since then I've been trying to use it for good. In 16, I founded Dust Date and worked with Coinbase to sweep up their cryptocurrency dust and give it to charity. Uh, and we built various orphanages in Romania and collared elephants and so on and so on. Since last year, I founded Aniseed and we created uh, or have created biodiversity collectibles. And we are creating, similar to the Super Dudes, a community called the Climateers. And the idea being that you bring in a Web3 flavor to it so people can feel that they get connected to the actual assets on the ground, the nature assets or natural assets, the communities, but also they can get involved in the franchise, so the content creation right. um, and also the benefit of that. So that's what we're working on now. That's cool. Hey guys, I'm Max, continuing the climate change tradition here. Uh, and I think it's also climate a sign of our times. Yeah. I found a company, Carbon Base. We are building the world's fifth carbon central bank, uh, Asia's first. Hopefully, uh, working with India, China, East Asia, and South uh, East Asia. Seven years ago, I also started something called Salon. Started out actually, uh, with a few friends at Stanford, and we grew to about 10,000 people around 13 cities uh, with no capital. And it's been fascinating to sort of create accidentally like a meta organism and see it evolve. So I think that's also been a big part of mine, actually, how to sort of govern and influence and sort of abdicate from responsibility of running these sort of meta organisms. And the last thing I'm really interested in actually is creating new nation states. Right. So something else that I think other people on here. I'm glad you said that because I was going to, I, I kind of want to see about some of the things that all of the people here are very like-minded. And I kind of want to see some of the things that some of the assumptions we might have had and how things have changed and where we can learn from the things that have changed in a way that we can all benefit and double click and invest in each other and sort of create a larger impact. So are there any other cities people here. I'd love to talk to people from like the smart city or urban innovation. I also work in urban innovation. Um, I'm curious to know, I can share some thoughts, but I'm curious to know, are there any other cities people here who, who want to talk about Brian um, Kurtz. what's been going on? Yeah. Hi, I'm Grant Wilson. I'm the executive director at Earth Law Center, another Earth lawyer. And we work with cities to reimagine their entire legal systems to give a voice to nature. And what if local governance was including nature as a stakeholder and a rights holder. And so we help cities write laws that say nature has rights, that create guardianship for ecosystems, so ecosystems can participate in local government, that can show up at town hall hearings and express their opinions. And to your point, you know, we'd even be interested in helping nation, uh, nature have its own nation states. Nice. This is one piece of what an earth lawyer does. We work to give nature a voice in companies and Jurist, uh, national legislation, and in all sorts of other fora. So, cool. And uh, 
I want to ask you some more questions, but okay. Anyone else want to talk about cities for a second? I mean, I think one of the obvious ones about cities, and you can do some jazz with me on this if you like, is obviously there's been more open public spaces created, brick and mortar, which was one of the largest barriers to entry for many businesses. The costs have been decreased. You know, North America is starting to mimic Europe a little bit, realizing why there's probably more outdoor arcades versus closed up sort of stuff. Festivals are obviously on the rise, McZoning. I don't know. I'm curious to know if you think of any of this sort of like burner culture that has started to merge more into the city's conversation from your point of view or anyone else's. Uh, in Boston, is a waterfront. The uh, Boston Seaport is what's renamed, but it was the waterfront and it was industrial. And when I began living there in 1980, you parked there for a couple bucks and walked into town. And now it is urban parks and a social community, and it just drives innovation. Of course, it began with spaces, like you said, with innovative spaces where people would come out, work together, and incubate. Right. And so in terms of advancing nature, though, you look at what's there. It was an industrial site, right? What's the best use? And so there's parks, and there's people where, amphitheaters, where you can hear music. And so innately, the festival culture becomes a part of a city. I see that. I, I want to note that I've never been called an elder and would never pretend to be one, but I'm pretty sure I'm the oldest guy here. And I, I say that only because Woodstock was my counterculture movement. It, it wasn't. I mean, by the time this cultural movement came, I'd been through one. And, and we see how that movement was crushed, horribly crushed, and how politically it just didn't have the footing to continue past the 1960s. Right. And that's critical, is that the political force, and as I say, we're lawyers, and who becomes politician? Failed lawyers. But we know that we have to use the legal systems to influence the making of laws as we do at the constitutional level in Ecuador, in Chile now, they're working on a constitutional invention, but also at the municipal level, where you have a central interest in preserving a river and the mm -hmm. rights of the river. That's our Earth's law. Well, I love that. I mean, like, we've taken a slight turn from just Black Rock City, Burning Man, but in the conventional sense of Burning Man, ultimately, we're creating an experiment in living together, in living, in redesigning how we live, work, and play all together at once. You know, some camps of people are here, potentially at Davos, to talk about problems or symptoms of problems and changing the world and solutions or, you know, the development goals. And other people are here to kind of say, hey, actually, you know, maybe we actually just need to create experiments of in, in how we live, work, and play together, and then it'll resolve some of those things into smaller economic models or different ecosystem models. So I think that's another interesting piece what you just said. Oh, Harold wants to go. I want to challenge this a little bit. Let's so, go. Because I, I did some stuff, uh, work with, um, you know, smart cities in 2015, and there was, like, big companies, American... 2015, a lot okay. A of Wi-Fi guys, you know, Cisco and so on. And um, it, was, um, it was a technical idea about smart cities and so on. And I said, well, why don't we talk about connected villages or communities? Mm -hmm. And it was, mind you, before this, whole, and I, even then I said, IBM said even 10 years, 20 years ago, like we have telecommuting. And that was one word 
30 years ago, so you age yourself with all these buzzwords going up and down. But the, the notion was, and is maybe still, oh, in what, 2050, 75 or 80 percent or something live in cities, so we're going to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. But that means for me, there's still 20 years to keep people from moving to cities. So mm -hmm. why don't you make villages or, or rural areas more attractive. I mean, we know rural areas are the key to the solution. You know, every rural areas in the Amazon is like the, the purest form of the saving the world part. It's not like that you're living in the city and say, hey, I'm, I'm a hero, I'm saving the world. Mm -hmm. And if you live inside the city, it's not about the other two million, it's about your neighborhood. So exactly. actually you go in a city to find maybe your peers and your community. So that's the and the purest form of these communities are back in villages. Right. And so, so I think that dialogue is not really. No, no, no. You're, you're totally right. But you're totally right for that sliver of time. I think it's completely accurate. Also, the smart city people were kind of annoying and they got like way too Internet of Thingsy and it didn't really work out. But, Poli no, but before, politicians, before that, for example, they don't that. see that. They see, oh, we're creating 10,000 yeah. new apartments the next year or two and right. that's how they measure and they the headline always with politicians is we're investing 100 million and 80 it's always big numbers big guys big right. photo sort of well, so I think, I think yeah. you have to kind of dig deeper to small I think you're right but also I'm just gonna okay so you were too early but you were also too late because obviously the Mayans used to throw festivals before they built their cities <laughs> so you were just in the wrong time right and I think that COVID has significantly accelerated that, right? It, we learned how to praise and value the role of the creative well before we previously had, you know, McKinsey and Boston Consulting got called out for having like the monopoly on, on creative consulting. And that's just simply not the way it works. We needed to appreciate our neighbors more than ever. And we very much became actually digitally galvanized as well as locally galvanized at the exact same time. You know, people who grew up in certain types of ghettos may never have had access to different people that they found access to online during that time. And, and we very much also, who maybe travel around the world who are hyper-connectors, were grounded in our, in our locale. So given that that change has happened and we're in the largest repro reprogramming of our time, now we revisit this city conversation. And I had a joke actually when COVID happened, if you remember, Stan, I was like, oh my God, it's the hipsters for the win, the hipsters for the win. Because like the hipsters, or if you read Monocle magazine, they're always like, okay, you live in nature close to a large international airport, but not in a large city. And then you can, you know what I'm talking about. It's all about Monocle magazine. Are there some other subject areas we want to bring up here that we think that maybe have, oh yeah, back to you. Yep. I have a question for you. So as a lawyer, I'm trying to learn about new paradigms always. And what can lawyers who are working with local governments learn from Burning Man in terms of new oh, governance God. structures, decision making, representing entities? I, I, oh, God's a good start. But yeah, right. what else? Well, I mean, it's not it's not my department, <laughs> but uh, Burning Man is complicated. It's in two different jurisdictions, federal as well as state. There's a lot of very, very, very specialized people who work all year round to try and make sure that we are still able to create an autonomous zone inside America, an undefined space inside America every year, where the only thing that is the same is that you have no idea what's going to happen, right? And there'll be a man, and there'll be a temple. That's basically the only thing we know. My advice to you is, I mean... So in summary, how can we learn from the legal systems of Burning Man? Or how can we think about this mindset of that we're in the burner mindset as it relates to legal stuff, collective decision making? Artwork, representing nature, anything where local government could learn from. I mean, I don't know if 
there is an absolute answer to some of this. I think most of the people sitting on this panel right now are very, very good at getting behind red tape. I, I would say that for me, based on my life, not answering on behalf of Burning Man or Burning Man ecosystem per se, but for me, it's always been about building the network, finding the consensus of the people who are most interested in what you're trying to achieve firstly. Once that's happened, finding the opportunity to prototype and likely fail, knowing that you're going to fail in order to popularize failing fast and that which the people who are telling you no don't know what they don't know. Creating opportunities to demonstrate and prototype what people don't know they don't know because they're stuck in this different mindset is the very first way to do that. And, and then often after you break the rules, and it's funny because we're talking about permission, often when you don't ask for permission, then you're able to draw the case studies, um, the, the impact and, 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 and the examples, and actually popularize the failures in a way that encourages and inspires more people to then get involved about what the potential solutions may be. And that's kind of the best that I got. I don't know if anybody else wants to go anywhere. Maybe I, I love this, and, and maybe you can add that, that similar that you create this free zone, basically, or try to, that uh, cities must really much more deliberately create or save these kind of playful zones, because uh, cities really much, let's say, profit uh, and benefit from, let's say, you have this abandoned... Collectively benefit. Uh, yeah, abandoned neighborhood, nobody is living there, then the first artists go in, then the gallery, then the first super cool coffee shop, then Starbucks, then the pizza, then... The hipster the, signage. Yeah, and then 20 years later, you have the best high-rises because that was the in-neighborhood, and that's where the money comes in. So can you not save some of these spaces and build the neighborhoods, you know, somehow safe around it, not just wait for all this, you know, basically hummus of, of creativity, which saves these cities, and, and they make money down the line and, and create more spaces, obviously, for living. But I think having these play zones and, and keeping them fresh and keeping them somehow center, not like always pushing them you know, behind the airport or something like that. So I think keeping exploration you know, in the center is somehow something valuable. You know, one of the, one of the places we've been watching on this is little Haiti in Miami. Oh, yeah. And so Tony Cho has been pretty involved with you know, looking at a lot of the Miami real estate and then trying to rebuild. Will you sum yeah, summarize, summarize what it is really quickly. So, they so Little Haiti is a development project in uh, Miami and it's in an area that was pretty economically depressed, but it's also very well located. It also happens to be about three feet higher than the rest of Miami, which for climate change has big implications. But yeah, well, what Tony is trying to do is to like not do the standard gentrification model, which I do respect because the problem with this is that you end up often with gentrification yeah. and the people who communicate and who hold that community end up getting pushed out. And so how do you bring those people, keep them into the community and help them evolve with the community, I think is the big challenge right. of all of this. Right. Okay. I want to comment on what you said really quickly, which, and, uh, oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, and just real quick, we are over time on oh. this event. So our next event is also going to be kind of slowly but surely coming okay. from the snow. So as we evolve our meta evolution, we're going to evolve into drinks and continued conversation as other people come in. Okay. Well, we're going to close on this question. I think it's pretty interesting. And then I'll, I'll, I'll sum us up and we can make some space for these new people to come in. I think that also while this reprogramming happened in COVID, where we appreciated our neighbors more, we appreciated the role of the creative more, we realized that how we used our time and the industrial revolution might have not have been the way to divide up the week. We also got burnt out. 
we were tired. We're banging pots and pans out our windows at seven o'clock for nurses and things like that, or at least that's what was happening in Canada. So our civic muscles got activated well beyond what they were previously, but then they also got burnt out. So most of my friends who work in urban in, urban um, innovation festivals and hackathons and civic design festivals, they have had lower engagement and less business than ever, even though the message has been received and it's become a little bit more a part of the fabric of society is because we're tired, we're civically burnt out in a way, um, which is one thing that I just wanted to sort of share. And then the other thought, going back to what you were saying, is that quite often the way cities are zoned right now, they tell you what you're allowed to do. This is a park for this. You bike this way. Your dog can go to the bathroom over there. You can do this here, you can do that there. Based on social physics, which is actually a book I read for the first time after I came to the hub for the first time in 2014. And Sandy Pentland. And Sandy Pentland, who I'm still trying to get to come to Burning Man and, and do case studies. So if anybody here knows him, I'm sure you all do. Give him a little tap because he hasn't been convinced by me yet. But anyways, um, he says, and, this, and, and social physics says, that what we think is positive sometimes is actually ne negative in terms of social physics. So we used to say, this is this, this is this, this is this. But actually, it's more positive to simply say what it isn't. You cannot have open fires here, but you can do anything else. You cannot, I don't know, cross the road from this part, but whatever, I don't know. The point is, is that what we absolutely cannot do should be made the concession for the zoning and the rest of it should be all possible through cause and effect and through prototyping. Great. And Thank does anybody you. else have any closing thoughts on cities and innovation and, and the reprogramming that we're going through? Yeah. Um, anyone else? I want to end with a dare. So I want to dare you to something. So for me, we have been literally in a Kukong, obviously, the last two years. And uh, this is part of this crystallist metamorphosis picture. So before, you have, we have been really like a capitalist um, caterpillar, of eating, 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 consuming, and so on. And uh, in this thought process, we all hoped that, uh, you know, after flies go, went down and, and, you know, we were sitting at home reflecting that uh, maybe some of us become butterflies. But I see that at least 80% of the world wants to be back to be a caterpillar because that's the world we all know. Like, oh, yeah, 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 I'll be a little bit better, but I will, that's what I want to be. And it takes a lot of t courage, and that's why I dare you, because burners might be the butterflies. We have to be more courageous to you know, be examples of that new world in whatever means we have in small pieces. But just to be a better caterpillar is not what we need right now, because that is... The imaginal cells. Exactly. So. You know, the imaginal cells was launched in this room. I got the book here, whatever, five years yeah. ago when she was writing it. And right? it, it does come full circle how many moments happen, and this, this has been a great conversation. Can I ask us all to do something? Can we all stand up? And we're going to turn on some music, and I want you to talk to the person next to you. And for the live stream, thank you. Thank you, Internet. Thank you.